Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for tuning in to the second part of episode 300 of Last Born in the Wilderness. I am your host, Patrick Farnsworth. This section of this episode is going to be dealing with the five interviews that I was able to conduct in Brazil in the time frame of about December 2019 to February 2020, over a two-month period. I just wanted to do a section on these interviews because they were so significant to me, personally speaking, and significant to the work that I have been conducting over the past several years with this podcast. These interviews were done in collaboration with Mina Wabi-Sabi, political theorist, journalist, and editor at Gods and Radicals Press. I'll just provide a little background here. This was a period of time in which I was very fortunate to be able to travel a bit. I was able to get a pretty good deal on a plane ticket, a round-trip ticket down to Brazil, and Mina was more than willing to collaborate with me on these things. She is bilingual. She was able to provide interpretation and also able to provide the dubbing, the audio dubbing for these interviews into English. Four out of five of these interviews were done in Portuguese. So she was able to set these interviews up for me. She connected me with five really incredible human beings in which we were able to talk about a diversity of subjects. And I'll be explaining each of those as we get to them. I just want to state that the significance of these interviews for me was, one, is that this was the second time that I was able to get outside the United States. Uh, Being in Brazil was an incredibly life-changing experience for me. It deeply informed how I look at things politically and how I think about a lot of the subjects that I discuss in great detail and uh, depth on this podcast. Uh, It allowed me to step outside of quite literally the United States, the cultural body of the United States, and have a lot of things shown to me that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to experience. One of those things that was revealed to me is the ways in which so much of the work that I do is through a Western and more specifically a U.S. American lens. And I don't deny that. I don't think I've ever really denied that. But there's one thing to understand that on a kind of abstract or, or more intellectual level, like, yeah, of course, I was raised in the United States. I'm from the United States. I'm a white person living within the confines of this nation state. So understandably, being born wherever you're born, uh, you're going to have certain perspectives that are just informed by that reality that you are a part of, that you are looking at the world through. And the ability for me to be able to leave this country and to spend time south of the equator in South America, in Brazil, with Mina was really... It it just allowed me to address the ways in which being from the global north, being from the United States, there are so many blind spots that come with that. Of course, right? Like, of course, you're going to have blind spots if you're not from a particular place and you experience what it's like to be there for the first time. But there's certain blind spots that come with being a person that is white from the global north. There's a certain privilege. And I don't mean that in a positive sense. I just mean that as just an obvious thing that if you're from the global north, from a country like the United States, you're just going to see things through a particular lens. And there's just going to be so many things that you're just not going to understand until you actually experience it yourself. There's a profound level of just blindness that comes with that. 
And so being able to go to Brazil and to see the various parts of this country that we were able to travel to was just a life-changing experience for me. And it's just so deeply uh, affected how I look at so many different things now. And I, I really love Brazil. I really love being there. I would love to go back. I mean, I mentioned the time frame that I was there. And of course, I mentioned I came back to the United States in mid, early, mid-February. And that was right before the COVID pandemic. Well, I should say the reaction to the COVID pandemic was really beginning. At that point, this virus was already spreading around the world. And so there's so many things about Brazil that I find so deeply fascinating and, and disturbing. I mean, there's disturbing things about the country just in the same way that there are fascinating and disturbing things about the United States. You know, both countries are products of settler colonialism uh, with a legacy of slavery and genocide and so on. To be able to like know that in the United States, to know these things, and then to actually go to Brazil and see and speak with people who are witnessing the ongoing genocide of indigenous people, for instance, the ways in which the legacy of slavery is still felt in Brazil up to the present day, the ways that the political system operates, uh, the legacy of the military dictatorship in Brazil that lasted from the mid-60s to the mid-80s. Uh, all of these things, like, it was just such a, it was like a crash course for me to be there and to just have this experience of speaking with these incredible people, to uh, learn so much from Mina as well, who was able to do so much for me while I was there uh, and being able to set these interviews up to, again, do the interpretation, translation, dubbing, and so on. We also filmed these interviews and released them as video interviews along with the audio. So there was a lot of work that was put into these series of interviews between the both of us. And it was a just an incredible experience that I just really wanted to feature in this very long episode of 300. The first interviews that we conducted were done in Rio. They were conducted on December 20th of 2019, right before Christmas. And the event that we went to in order to record these interviews was More Love, Less Capital, or Mais Amor, Menos Capital. And this event is organized by anarchists. Two of the organizers that we interviewed, Andre Magues and Elisa Cuadros, were able to explain the event and the significance of it. You know, as the, the title of that event suggests, it's about moving beyond capital and the effects that capital, capitalism, and consumerism has had on Christmas. The event is sort of to stand in the face of the ways in which capitalism has appropriated this holiday, which again is supposed to be about giving. So the event is there to provide gifts, to feed homeless people in Rio, to stand in the face of the state and capitalism. The event also is just very cultural, I remember being there and doing these interviews, but just having the experience of being in the middle of this event, all the people that were there, the music, the dancing, the vibrancy of it, being an outsider to this, being from the United States, a lot of this was overwhelming for me, personally speaking. I think Mina and I actually addressed that in the introduction we recorded for this episode featuring these two interviews. There was a cultural shock that I was definitely experiencing while I was there that eventually subsided 
but nonetheless, you know, being a white boy from Idaho, it was a definitely, there was a transitionary period there that was a bit rough for me. But nonetheless, we were able to do really good work at this event to document it and to put these interviews out in this episode. My name is Andrea Andrea Miguez. I'm a filmmaker and member of the independent collective media. It's a collective of activist media, which is active in the streets of Rio de Janeiro, São Paulo, and parts of Brazil. How long have you been involved with this event? The event started in 2013, and it's in its seventh edition. It starts originally when there is an occupation of the municipal city hall of Rio de Janeiro. People occupied the city hall, and a relationship was formed with the homeless community of the area because they started to participate in the occupation. And from this relationship of mutual love between the members of the Occupy, the city hall, and the homeless people of the area, and that's when this process started. The amount of homeless people in Brazil, with the change in government, and the ascension of the right-wing government, it grew in an absurd way, in a way that the activists and people who live in better conditions have to find ways to integrate themselves and look for something to do for these people who are on the streets. Okay, uh, could you talk about what happened in 2013 a little bit? In 2013, these people did the city hall occupation. They were profoundly persecuted by the state. They were sued, arrested, and this didn't get any better, it just got worse. And now with Bolsonaro in power, the process of persecution against activists and independent media in this country has only grown. So under in 2013, uh, you had a leftist, typically leftist president. PT party was in power with Rousseff. It was a left-wing government that had a lot of concessions with the right. One of these concessions was the persecution against autonomous activists. This was proven to be wrong politics. Because of this, the right ended up ascending even more. The event is at Christmas because originally Christmas, Jesus effectively wasn't a religious leader. He was much more a revolutionary leader. And Christmas lost its essence. It became a party of capital. That's why it's called More Love, Less Capital. Uh, activist media grew a lot in Brazil from 2013. However, the political persecution and the lack of support on the side of the organizations made so that this kind of activism decreased. But it's a very strong movement in Brazil, in all of Brazil and Latin America. The event happens once a year. People are here interacting, socializing. But this relationship is something that happens all year long. People are here, they're with us and we're with them. Talk about the uh, anti-terrorism law that came into effect in 2013 and how that affected your ability to organize if you're still able to organize in the face of legislation. Yeah, in fact, this law, the law of international security, comes before this period, 2013. With the big events of the Olympics and the World Cup, they had to increase the power of this law. And we suffered these consequences on our skins. We were sued, there were plenty of people who were arrested. Elisa spent six months in hiding. And what we want is the radicalization of democracy. We want a real democracy, not a fascistic democracy as we have in Brazil. Uh, would you say that the left has become fractured and unable to organize considering what happened since 2013 or is it more unified since then? It's definitely fractured and it's disorganized, especially in the institutionalized left. But I believe that the true left is not the left that's inside the palaces. And yes, the people who are here on the streets making the real socialization happen. 
socialização. Uh, under Bolsonaro, what are the next steps that you think are for the left? Do you think that there's an ability for them to organize with the, the anti-establishment and establishment left? I believe so. I think it's possible. But you have to have the consciousness that it's not through the formal democracy. And yes, through the street democracy, the democracy of the streets, that will have the strength to take down Bolsonaro. If the left really tries to reaffirm its alliances with the base, with the people, with the population, the poorest of the population, that's the way the left can organize itself to take down Bolsonaro. Do you have any faith in the electoral process of getting Bolsonaro out of power and that's making it better for the left? Or do you see the same problems under a leftist, a leftist uh, government? Yeah, exactly. Many times a left that arrives in power just to have class conciliation, it's a false left. How would this event help organize people outside of the establishment power of the left in order to further the politics of anti-authoritarianism? This is not a process that's going to happen overnight. It's going to happen slowly. It's through educational transformation, popular education, popular empowerment. It's from there that, yes, we can one day get to power, and from there to change the legitimacy of power. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. All right, so that was the first interview that we conducted at that event. The second interview I'd like to feature here is with Elisa Cuadros. To give you a little background, so she talks about a few different things in this interview. One of the main things that she discusses in this interview is the fact that she became, during the 2013 uprisings uh, in Brazil, she became one of the most infamous dissidents and political prisoners in the country due to relentless persecution by the media, the police, and clandestine paramilitaries. And a common theme that is discussed between both of these interviews, of course, is to elaborate on how the stakes in Brazil when it comes to the political system that they are working with or against, the stakes are very high. Uh, they're high here, too, in the United States. We just maybe can't perceive it as well. Because the, I think the left in the United States is is definitely there, but it's, as far as having like actual political power or any currency in uh, establishment politics, it's just very different in Brazil. There's just a different dynamic going on there. And of course, these two interviews here with Elisa and of course with Andre, these are anarchists. So their position, of course, is anti-state and anti-capitalist. But as Elisa is going to explain here, you know, there is a significant difference between the PT party or the workers' party, which had its issues most definitely, especially with anti-authoritarian leftists, but also the differences between that political party gaining power in the country and what Bolsonaro has done as the president. There's a significant difference, and the ways in which Bolsonaro has really heightened the threat level, you could say, of leftists, uh, of those who do not fit into the heteronormative binaries, those that are queer, those that are trans, for people that are indigenous, for people that are non-white. You know, all of this has only gotten worse under the Bolsonaro regime. It's similar to what happened under Trump. You know, having a leader like Trump in the United States, we saw all of the authoritarian right-wing fanatics really come out of the woodwork. And something very similar is happening with Bolsonaro in Brazil. Elisa does describe that, but she talks about how back in 2013 during those uprisings, I mean, she was, as she describes it, she was a scapegoat. 
You had the right-wing media in Brazil, you had the police, you had the whole paramilitary uh, element in Brazil, all persecuting her. Obviously a very horrifying and traumatic experience, but it's something that she's very willing to discuss, and I think it really informed her activism. And so it was a really, I felt very fortunate that I was able to have this conversation, this interview with her in the middle of this event, you know, standing on the steps of City Hall in Rio. Uh, could you tell us, uh, so I'm in, from the United States. We may not know very much about your story for where I'm from. Uh, yeah, I think it's very important, though, that we understand what you've gone through and what you're working on, what you've worked on in the past. If you could give us a little bit of information on that. I graduated in film. I was a producer for 15 years. My mother is an activist from the military dictatorship. She's a survivor, a teacher. Since I was small, I participated in social movements. I was president of some student groups. I never got involved in activism the way I am involved since 2013. So my life changed completely because of a sentimental reason as well, because the energy of 2013 was an energy that was overwhelming, of change and questioning. And after I was arrested in 2013, I was used as what we say in Brazil, body expiatorio, a scapegoat. So this changed my life completely because I was put in the main newspapers of Brazil. I was at the cover of Veja, a right-wing magazine, very famous but completely sensationalistic. I was in Fantastico a bunch of times. I was massacred. I had to leave the state three times because of threats from militia because of an occupation that was happening here at the City Hall, which was Occupy City Hall, which started this whole project. And then I never stopped. I'm involved in all types of struggles involving human rights, always with the movements of homeless people. If there's anything, any movement happening in the favelas, I support it. I'm not from the favela, I don't live in a favela, I think it's really important to state that. I'm white, and I have my privileges, and this is also something that inside Brazilian activism, we try to deconstruct and to put that the white middle class has privileges, and we see more than half of the Brazilian population in misery, and being assassinated by the police every day. And I start understanding myself as a human being, a Brazilian citizen, having the responsibility to fight for these struggles. Why do you think that you were specifically targeted for political persecution, for becoming a political prisoner? This is something I tried to analyze for many years, for seven years now. And I don't have really an explanation, I think, at least in my point of view, that 2013 had its movements of occupations. There was the Cabral occupation, which was from our governor, who's been arrested for many years already, his militia. 
And it was from these occupations that from within Brazilian politics and the municipal city halls in syndicates, the majority of our politicians are militia and assassins. So since we were very active in these occupations, which were the occupations that instigated these denunciations, against these robbers, these assassins. I was one of the ones picked. Brazil is a really conservative country, right? Sexist, homophobic, classist. So you have a white girl, middle class, and that way you can get a big chunk of activists to go against me. You get this white girl, and then you can get the black movement to be against you, against me. And you take a straight girl, then the LGBT movement can come against me. And I also have... Uh, a temper, I am very fierce, I fight with the police at the demos. I think it was revenge, a personal revenge of some politicians. And it was easy to criminalize for these reasons I told you, for being white. I think there were other candidates for this position. I got screwed in this one. Fuck me, fuck, fuck myself, fuck <laughs> uh, How long were you in prison for? I was arrested twice in Bangu, Bangu 8. It's a prison, it's the biggest prison here in Rio, and it's considered one of the worst in Brazil. I was in six days and 11 days. And I was seven months clandestine. I received an arrest warrant with my face. It was a poster with my face on it, a wanted poster, with a reward of 2,000 reais. And every Sunday on TV at Fantástico, this TV show, and in the newspapers, and so on. It was really difficult to go through this. It wasn't easy to go to Bangu prison, but it was much harder to stay seven months clandestine because all of Brazil knew me and I was hiding in cubicles. Um, so since being out of jail, what has your life been like? Are you still being... A hell. <laughs> hell? Are you still being persecuted? Are you still getting targeted by the state, by the police, any other groups or anything like that? Brazil has, well, inside Brazilian system. I'm not going to say peculiar because other Latin American countries also live with this. But in Brazil we have several powers. We have the militia, the police, the police, the militia, the media, the actual state with the judiciary. So I was persecuted from all sides. So when I was with habeas corpus, I was condemned to seven years in prison. 
So when I was in habeas corpus, the militia was pushing me out of the state with gun to my head. When I was at home, the media was putting my picture everywhere. So in these last seven years, the first four or five, I didn't have time to be me. I was this character, Sininho, Tinkerbell. How important are these types of events for organizing in the face of what seems to be a huge amount of what seems to be like right-wing power in this country? Since Bolsonaro elected himself, elected himself, I didn't vote for him. I'm an anarchist, I don't vote. Since 2013, the activists live in a tension of getting sued and, and so on. But it's different when a fascist, an assumed fascist like Trump, but the difference with Trump is that at least Trump is a businessman. He thinks something. He plans things out. Our thing is this. He doesn't think. He shits shit. He's a fascist. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio set fire to the Amazon. Greta is a brat. The natives made the price of meat rise. But on the other hand, aside from him being a shit, he's really powerful because he managed through the hate speech empower these people who these fascists that were there sleeping all were ashamed of being fascists, homophobics, and so on. And now it's totally out of control, this fascism and this hate speech. So those two interviews with Andres and Elisa, I mean, they're very important that we conducted those interviews and we produced that episode together. But I also wanted to feature a bit of the introduction that we recorded for that episode. Of course, we recorded it after the event. And there's this part of the introduction where after we talk about the event and contextualize it a bit, Mina used it as an opportunity to point to something which I think is really important as far as what Brazil is as an idea, as a place, as a lived experience, as a cultural body. And I keep on using that word cultural body because I think that's the best way to describe what it is. You know, living in the United States, I'm a part of a culture, I'm a part of a, a cultural body. And I had this distinct feeling, I may have mentioned this already at some point during the recording of this episode, but the feeling of being like plucked out of the United States and then placed within Brazil for those two months was a very distinct feeling. It, it was a lot, you know, it was a lot to sort of integrate and to become present, to stay present as I was becoming overwhelmed over and over again while I was there. Uh, it took some time for me to feel like I was even able to be present like to really just feel my body and to be in the place I was in. And so we addressed this in this segment of our discussion of the introduction. And I just wanted to feature it because it really, you know, I was listening to it before I started recording this little piece of commentary here. 
And it's so interesting to go through these interviews and hear us talking about these things and to remember like where I was at at that time, how I was feeling and just the whole, the whole range of experiences I was having. And this is something we talked about, I think maybe after we recorded this introduction and this thing that I've addressed maybe um, with other people, but there's an interesting thing that happens to me. Like I've been doing long form interviews for quite a while now. And of course I have a microphone set up and the whole thing and how I am when I'm recording with a microphone in front of my face, how I express myself, how I'm able to articulate myself, my ideas and my thoughts. There's just something that happens. Like there's a, a switch that turns on a little, a thing that happens where even in really intense interviews, I'm able to be more present and pay more consistent attention to what's going on around me and, and to the, well, specifically to the person I'm talking to. And I think Mina knew this and she used this as, a, as an opportunity to ask me and to bring up certain things that we had been dealing with uh, while I was there, uh, including the so-called intensity that I talk about being in Brazil, the energy of Brazil. Um, I was listening to your podcast. I don't know which one was it about where you respond as um, like it's the first time you respond saying that you're in Rio and you said you're getting used to how mm. different things are here and mm -hmm. it's hot, you're sunburned and you're all bitten with yeah. a bunch of, I don't know, many, many insects are biting have, you. It's not just, I don't <laughs> think it's just mosquitoes. It's I have like different kinds of bites. You. I have different kinds of bites on me. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I haven't gotten sick though. I got hives. I got hives. That's good. The first week, but that's it. That's yeah. fine. It could be much worse. It so could be way worse. That's for actually sure. actually great. But... <laughs> So you're talking about, you know, you're responding to a call. I remember now. You're responding to a call and yeah. you're saying, oh, I was listening to it and I was in the car, in the <laughs> car from the airport in Sao Paulo and it was really intense. Yeah. And then being here is like quite different and intense. This intensity, I, I'm pretty sure it was present in this event, right? Yes. Like it was an intense Absolutely, event. Absolutely, yeah. the energy. Very intense. But From, everywhere, the traffic is intense. The city is intense. The heat is in intense. The heat's intense. The traffic <laughs> is intense. Just the general, like being from the United States and being from a conservative part of the United States, just all of these things, like the different shells of that have to break for me to be present in an environment like that, you know. So that yeah, absolutely. Like that's that's a that's a real thing for me. You I know? wanted to talk about this intensity because in our inter our last interview, do you remember about Villa Mimosa? Mm -hmm. And I think I brought up something about you coming here and how the point of it happening here. We're not just talking about something. We are there. I'm here, and we are mm -hmm. talking about this, right? Mm -hmm. I can actually bring you, and you can feel the energy, and you can feel this intensity. Mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. so how does he how is it for you like the difference between you know having a conversation and actually experiencing the intensity of what we're talking about well the interview itself so <clears throat> so when you yeah when I'm doing interviews online and there's like you're sitting in a room in a you're on the, you're just like having a phone call so you have a certain comfort you know in that it's it's easy 
but we were standing on the steps basically of this old building in city hall city hall in rio and there's like music and people walking around us some people didn't even see that we were filming something they're walking in front of us there's little kids that were trying to like get us to like hey you're not doing this thing or that participate thing. in yeah. the directing yeah they were trying to direct <laughs> you to be in the camera yeah. we we're like no no she's not supposed to be in it because it's like technically you're the interpreter or whatever mm-hmm. like all these things and and um people were you know interrupting the interview to talk to the organizers or um and then you have the other layer of it which is you know doing the actual interview itself is i've never done an interview involving interpretation Mm -hmm. so i'm speaking you interpret it you say it to them and they're like okay then they understand and then they start to speak and of course they speak a lot more than i do and so then you have to, they have to stop. You speak to me. So trying to string all the things that you just said to me when there's gaps in between and I'm trying to maintain eye contact with them and trying to be like, I'm engaging with you, but I'm also not really understanding what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It's like trying to patch together their body language with what you're saying to me. Mm-hmm. And it was really challenging. Yeah. That's why these interviews partly are shorter because it takes twice as long to do, you know, when you have yeah. interpretation. Um, and yeah, it was a very, it was, it was intense as an interviewer. It's, it was difficult, I will say, you know, I mean, I appreciated the challenge and more, more retrospectively than at the moment I was like feeling kind of overwhelmed, but, mm-hmm. um, it was good, you know, <laughs> it was good for me. I was like, this is what I I, I chose to do this and now I'm like actually experiencing it. I didn't know what it would be like. Yeah. But I'm here and I'm doing it and you supported me the whole way. You like helped me yeah. so much through the entire process. And I could tell that they both kind of saw that I was like, all right, this fucking guy's <laughs> trying to do something here. So, it was it they were sympathetic to my situation, I think. Oh yeah, it was really chaotic for them as well. I think it's also overwhelming for them. Of course, it's yeah. It's an intense event for them to organize. Um but but I mean more the intense energy. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about this energy because this intensity is very much what we have in Brazil. Mm-hmm. It's in a way what people are attracted to when they talk about Brazil, what they're interested in, the energy, you know, almost a touristic thing. You know, yeah. they have carnival and the beach and fun and parties and sex. You know, there's this and the, it's the energy of a football game and the goal, you know, yeah. and the grief of loss. It's always intensity. Intensity of That's emotion. Yeah. so much of what Brazil, in a way, almost sells as a tourist attraction, mm-hmm. this intensity. Mm-hmm. It's no wonder that we had these big events like the Olympics and the World Cup here, which instigated all of these protests that instigated the, also yeah. the beginning of more or less capitalism yeah. event. yeah. Because we do want to capitalize on this intensity. Mm-hmm. Of course, fuck that, right? Like capitalizing on, on people's feelings. But it's interesting to think about why are we like this and what does this mean? Because it's complicated when people come here and, and they, in a way, exotify it. They're, they fetishize it in a way, this, this energy that Brazil offers, that Brazil is known for. 
Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there is a, a thing that Westerns, Westerners, Europeans especially, feel superior to. It's mm-hmm. almost like something that they want to tame. Mm-hmm. They want to civilize. Mm-hmm. It's an energy that's uh, very often interpreted as uncivil. Mm-hmm. Uncivil, is that a word? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uncivil, uncivilized. So it goes, it runs deep. Mm-hmm. And it, for me, it's also an energy that's hard to explain. That, like, with us, I try to explain to you. I've tried to explain to read or talk to my friends in Europe. You know, the energy that's what it's like to be here and deal with people. For example, Elisa deals with these homeless people, hundreds of homeless people. And it's a very particular energy. It's an energy of, you know, we don't get to look away from our negative feelings. Mm-hmm. We don't have that luxury mm-hmm. to just like, I want to take a pause. Like, I'm going to go to my quiet place and take a break. Mm-hmm. You know, these people, let's start. They're homeless. <laughs> they don't have sometimes the opportunity or that safe space. Sure. Ever. So some, I think there's a little bit of this tension of us not being able to, we don't have the luxury of just, not looking at something negative. All right. So we're like overwhelmed by it. But the positive side is that that also brings us to appreciate the good stuff even more. Right. So there's like, we can't avoid the negative stuff. So we grieve and we suffer and we're really dramatic. And that's why we have soap operas and all this <laughs> drama all the time. But then we have this like intense joy as well. Like, sure. it's intensely joyful. Carnival is, like, almost too much joy. It's like, calm down. You know, I want to go home and, like, just watch a movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just intensity on all extremes. Yeah. And it's something I'm proud of. It's it's something I, when I lived in Europe, oh, they were always like, oh, it's really intense. Like, oh, and then I'm in a group of Brazilian people in a European context and my friends said, wow, it's really intense. I right? just uh, talking intensely with each other. It's not bad, not fighting or anything, just intense feelings being exchanged. And it shocks people. Mm-hmm. It shocks people from abroad. I, I can see that a lot. Yeah, it does. Yeah. You want me to think, say something about that? Because <laughs> <laughs> I agree with what you're saying. I was just... Uh... Well... Because you, you said intensity in a technical way. Like, it was intense because there were people interrupting and you had to hear someone mm-hmm. interpreting. It was intense in traffic and it was intense here because of the heat. I meant more like your experience as the intensity of... Of Brazil? Of this sense that I just described. Yeah, it's, um, it's forced me to... It's like you... I felt like I got plucked out of this cultural, emotional field of consciousness, I guess you could say, where that doesn't happen. When people yell, when people are intense in the sense you're talking about, it's associated with negativity. So the whole time, my whole life, that's what it's been associated as. And then you take that person, you put them in a country where that's not associated. It's not seen as a bad thing to have a heated discussion every day about whatever, you know, anything. Um, 
it's like my brain has been wired a certain way and my emotional reactions have been conditioned and so to spend now I've been here a month and it's starting to not trigger a fight or flight response in me (laughs) just barely maybe where I'm like stop turning stop stop recoiling inside yourself and shutting down when something makes you uncomfortable because that's been my response my whole life and that's partly because of my family life and my just it is cultural it's the united states it's being white it's being a man in the heteronormative sense you know it's all of these things in a in a ball like a nutshell (laughs) and that's what i've been my whole life and so it's been really challenging and it's not meant to be i mean i I think it often comes off and it, it, it has come off as judgment and, you know, then I think about it later and I'm like, no, that's not how I should have responded to that. That's not how I should have talked about that. Um, but nonetheless, it doesn't change the fact that I feel uncomfortable a lot. And, um... Oh, we're also uncomfortable a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> trust me, you're not the only one uncomfortable. Right, yeah. We are uncomfortable, too, man, every day. <laughs> every time. <laughs> Every time we listen to our president talk, it makes us uncomfortable. And even in that event, it's it's funny. Like, yes, we were uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable. We were dealing with equipment, and it was really loud. And it's then, hot. It's hot, and yeah, it, it's uncomfortable. But it's also so much joy. You see these beautiful, this like beautiful music, like music. No, the and music dancers. was amazing. The I've dancers. never had any like the, the, it was overwhelming. How beautiful and so like, intense it it's was. It's almost like we need the bad to have the good there too you know like the beautiful music and the beautiful dancing (laughs) and the beautiful dancing and it's it's not just you you know just because you are from the united states that you feel uncomfortable with certain things we feel uncomfortable here too about a lot of things like i feel uncomfortable with public transport i feel uncomfortable in traffic people who live here and drive every day my roommate, for example, they're also uncomfortable. She was telling me today about how yeah. the air conditioning went out in her car. and She has to drive to Rio every <laughs> few times a week to do her work. And she's like, oh, it's already fucking bad enough. And now I don't have AC and I don't have my music doesn't work in my car. It's like I need that to just survive so it's the intense. craziness of the traffic. Exactly. Yeah. So it's intense and it's also uncomfortable for us. So we understand you're uncomfortable with it because we also... Um, so, yeah, and, and there are worse things to be uncomfortable by, you know, like not having a senior car. Like, there are people who struggle with way more. Sure. And that's what we saw in this event. There are people who are much more uncomfortable with a lot more serious things. Yes. And that's what we're dealing with here, right? We can, we can have problems here and there, but there are certain things that people should never have to struggle with. We should never have to struggle with a family, a homeless family, like, we should never have to struggle with those women that I took photos of. Mm-hmm. Those are women I, I took family portraits of. Yeah. And and these children, like, I'm sorry, they, they just, you, you want to talk about discomfort, right? They are living on the streets. This is a child living on the streets. Yeah. And the women are beautiful. They're smiling. They're happy. You know, the, the yeah. family portraits are so beautiful. Yeah. And they're so beautiful and they're just so... And they're just so, I don't know, there's so much joy there. Yeah, of course. 
in so much discomfort. Mm-hmm. So it's really inspiring this this event, and I think Elisa talks a little bit about this this privilege, the white privilege, and how she's dealt with it, and what this means. So how she relates to this, I guess she knows she is also a mother. Yeah, she's but she's white and she's middle class. She has her privileges, and working with these women who are mothers and don't have certain privileges and how this dialogue is important mm-hmm. and how this kind of events needs to happen and this kind of collaboration needs to happen. Right. Yeah, they're doing really, I, th- I think, like, courageous work that no one really, well, not no one, but there's not many people that I can think of that it will stick their neck out like that and deal with the stresses of... Because, like, I think especially Elisa's story, she shares some of the things she experienced as a political prisoner, as somebody who was escaping the state and the way the media and the militia, like, all the powers of Brazil, yeah, you know, which are yeah. violent and powerful and, and intimidating, and she's, like... Gun to the head, out of the state kind of thing. Yes. Talk about discomfort, oh, right? fuck. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, my God. I, like, I didn't, you know, I was just standing in front of her. And I was just like, this is insane what she went through. And she's still probably going through stuff. The, re- the, the ripple effects of that experience she had since 2013. So these are incredible people. They're doing really brave work and... Yes. So I was really lucky and really happy that you hooked me up. <laughs> you made it happen, you know. <laughs> you make all this happen. I'm <sighs> so there's an aspect of this uh, conversation that you heard uh, with Mina there. Something that really came out of my time there was in interacting with Mina and interacting with all the other people that we interacted with through this trip was that, yeah, there, there's this sense of, like, they also feel uncomfortable. <laughs> there's, a, there's a sense of uncomfortability in the intensity of a lot of the ex- experiences, the situations, the context in which people have to live in. But regardless of that, People have to continue to live. They have to continue to make ends meet. They have to continue to survive and to live lives filled with joy and all that that entails. You know, something that really stood out to me being there in Brazil, it was really uh, just acutely recognized and highlighted is the ways in which I being... I think it's a combination of things. One being a product of the culture of the United States, being white, being uh, a man, all of these different things. The patterns of communication we have in the North, the way that we tend to communicate with one another, I don't think this necessarily applies to every region or to every group of people or to every family. But there's this indirectness of communication. There is... Being polite for the sake of being polite, there is this thing where there's there's like this passivity or uh, really it's just a form of dishonesty that we tend to cultivate in our communication with one another. Again, I don't want to overly generalize, but that's certainly something that I have been conditioned to 
to have in my communication with people. It's come up in my relationships. It's come up in the way I just exist. And I think the way that Mina described that there is that there isn't a lot of room there for that in Brazil. I, I don't feel any way. People have to be more direct and be more explicit in what they need and what they want because it just there's really no room for anything else I, I could be wrong in saying that and it may be a product of you know the, the, where you fit on the socioeconomic hierarchy that's a part of that as well but it's just something that became very clear to me that part of the blindness of being white or or being from the global north is the ways in which we obfuscate our desire. We hide behind rhetoric or forms of communication, patterns of communication that allow us to not look at certain things because it makes us uncomfortable. And there's a certain privilege in being able to avoid things that make us uncomfortable. And that is something that I was confronted with repeatedly throughout this two-month trip in Brazil. Privilege is one hell of a thing. It produces a certain... just a blindness in those that uh, have it. And there's different ways in which privilege man is manifest within the United States, for instance, but just on a global scale. And so, again, being able to leave the United States and be in Brazil for this amount of time really revealed certain things that I have to remind myself of repeatedly because the lessons that I learned were so valuable and something that I really want to carry with me into so many different realms of my own life and my work. And the next interview that I would like to feature is with Karina Hamos, who is an historian and member of the Brazilian Association of African Studies, or at least she was when we recorded this interview. And in the interview, we discussed the roots of the contemporary struggles of the Afro-Brazilian religious traditions and communities in Brazil, particularly in the uh, region of Rio, and how the contemporary form of the state and social oppression of these communities has manifested. Karina published an article through Gods and Radicals, and I'm just going to quote here what I highlighted in the description I wrote for this episode. Since the beginning of the 20th century, spaces of sociability and cultural manifestations of African matrix are attacked. Black men and women are expropriated of their rights and their most basic conditions of existence. There is not an interval of time within the line of events in the history of Rio de Janeiro where blacks and their cultural manifestations have not suffered with public power. And so that article was published in 2018, and the forms of persecution experienced by spiritual communities of the African diaspora in Brazil have increased with the election of far-right President Jair Bolsonaro. But as she points out in the interview, systemic oppression against these communities has existed in Brazil since its founding as a slave colony over 500 years ago. And that's something you're going to hear in this interview that I'm going to play for you with Karina, is, you know, I just acknowledge in the interview that I'm from the U.S. and often being from the U.S. we tend to project a lot of our ideas of racial hierarchies, white supremacy, etc. and how that's manifested in the U.S. We project that onto other countries like Brazil, which has its own legacy of 
settler colonialism and slavery. Although the enslavement of African peoples and the institution of slavery in Brazil was far larger than the United States. And the way that the so-called liberal democracy of Brazil emerged out of that is different from the United States. And the way that race is discussed and understood in Brazil is very different too. So blackness, whiteness, and so on have a different cultural context there. Carino does a good job of explaining some of that in the interview and talking about the spiritual traditions, and they are animist traditions in Brazil, how the African diaspora, the way that they have resisted over the centuries is to preserve these spiritual and religious traditions that come from West Africa, but have been formulated and have evolved into something wholly unique. Again, Karina talks about this because she comes from one of these traditions. There's always been conflict and uh, hatred directed towards black communities in Brazil, especially towards those that are practicing openly these spiritual traditions. And because of the antagonisms that have been uh, highlighted through the election of Bolsonaro, who comes from a, I think, an evangelical Christian background. So there is at least a parallel in the sense of the United States where we have a very strong political block of far-right Christian people uh, that have a strong influence on U.S. politics. The same thing can be said in many ways in Brazil. But again, the way that those manifested are very different. So this interview was really fascinating for me to talk with somebody who could articulate these things very well and to talk about as well why you know, being from the global north, we think about the struggles of the indigenous people of Brazil because we think about the, the fires and all of these things that I highlighted in that previous section of this episode. We think about how the indigenous people are resisting their the destruction of their land, the appropriation of their land, and so on, there are people of the African diaspora that are also struggling against the same apparatuses, the same structural violence that indigenous people experience in Brazil as well. First of all, I'd like to say I'm really happy that the article has helped you understand Brazilian culture a little better. It's very little still to explain things in a sufficient way. The same way was a complex process for you to get here. Brazilian culture is also very complex, as is the story of a lot of colonized countries. I'm a woman, a historian, a researcher. So yes, I am black. I'm the daughter of a priestess from a shrine at Tejero. Yeah. It's a condition that's very important for my academic life as well. Because I was able to unite ends that are supposedly very different. My house works as a vessel for many different people with many different stories, with desires and wants very different from each other, but all from the same society. So this relationship has made it possible for me to see and reconstruct history, not only of the history of my country, but of the African continent, which is the topic that I research in a complete way. 
conseguindo associar uh, being that individual level and the micro and the macro, macro the global, the regional, regional and so on, relating these different spheres. Right now, I'm in the last year of my doctorate, working on something that surrounds around the theme of food in Luanda, around the 50s. Okay. That's me. All right, beautiful. Thank you. Um, I think that what came across in your article I read was, I think when people talk about Brazil, they often focus about maybe the struggles of indigenous people in Brazil. For instance, with the news that came about this last year with the fires in the Amazon, yeah. right? And it's always about the indigenous people and their reservations. But as with my interview with Mina, talking about Columbus people, people of the African diaspora, yeah. I think that's often just not fully understood that that is a huge part of it as well, mm -hmm. that recognizing African spiritual traditions and communities mm -hmm. and... If you could talk a bit about that, uh, trying to raise awareness and understanding of the African diaspora and their religions and the peoples, mm -hmm. talk a bit about that and that unique history that makes it in, in Brazil a very unique thing. First of all, it's important to say that all peoples are important in some way. It's curious to see for you as an American that you feel there is more of a focus on indigenous peoples than on black people. And this says a lot more about you and your culture than about Brazil. Anyway, I have to reinforce the importance of both. Obviously, I am more focused on the black population, which was enslaved in Brazil. So this, of course, comes from my background as coming from a family of Candomblé and connecting again with this history through academia. So if we think about it, there's a lot of content being produced on this topic. If we dig, you'll see that the work of the researchers has expanded a lot in the last few decades. So there's a lot of content about this topic in Brazil. The question for me seems to be how to get this information, this contact, to reach the population in general. It's a question inevitably related to racism, uh, structural racism, to me. And not just for me, if in fact content is being produced and it doesn't reach, why isn't it reaching? That's it. Yeah, that's, that's really good. That's a really good question to ask. So I think though, uh, well, I use the word cosmology, Yeah. the spirituality, the understanding of reality and how these religions are practiced. And as again, Mina pointed out to me in leading up to this interview, the spiritual traditions of West Africa are very different than yep. what's come here in Brazil. There's totally. very different. I yep. think people will often project one to the other, you know, back and forth. But they're very different. In what ways would you define them as different? Yeah. I went to research the history of Africa exactly because of my relationship with Candomblé. Here in Brazil, we tried to create an image of Africa and tried to come close to this image. One of the ways of coming close to this history is through the religions of the African diaspora, Candomblé and Umbanda. 
Mas, de fato, In não fact, são these are not African religions. They come from a very long history that has led these religions to be built here in Brazil. When I went to Luanda in 2018, I mentioned to some people from Angola that my mother is a priestess from a shrine, and people were very surprised. They would ask me if it's witchcraft or if it's black magic even with a little bit of prejudice. And I tried to explain in my own way, because I'm not from Condomble, but it was an imperfect explanation. Everything in translation is imperfect, right? There, there is no Candomblé or Umbanda, at least to my knowledge. There, the religions are more of Christian background. Baptist, Adventist, Pentecostals which is in itself a result of colonization in Africa, which doesn't mean that it didn't have the participation of the actual Africans in this construction. It was a question of survival, of new comprehensions of the world, many different factors that are in this construction. And what we have of Africa, in my perspective, in my experience, is exactly the lifestyle, the way of looking at the world, which exists there in some way until today. So to get a real idea of the scope of this, uh, the African diaspora and how big the slave trade was in Brazil and how everything that, I mean, in what ways are we still feeling in Brazil? Are you still feeling the impacts of the slave trade and sort of get an idea of how these communities are still feeling the historical dimension of what happened. All you need to do is look at the architecture of the city, look at the streets of the city, at the schools in the city. Only who doesn't want to see it doesn't see it, the magnitude of the presence. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I guess maybe to give people an idea of like the, the slave trade and like how many how many slaves were brought here, how many people were kidnapped from Africa and brought here, and and the ways in which that is still being. I mean, I know that we can look around and see colonialism, like in the way I can in the United States, sense that yeah. this is built on top of something else, yeah. right? Um, but to I, I think Americans are we're very. American-centric. We're very obsessed with our own history. We think that slavery started and ended in the United States. Mm -hmm. But Brazil seems to have been one of the largest slave colonies yeah. in the world. Mm -hmm. If you could speak to that a bit. A gente é um país um pouco sonso que fecha os olhos para si mesmo. We are a country that's a little bit sleepy. We close our eyes to ourselves. For a very long time, we had this myth of the racial democracy and that the Brazilian was cordial, that the slave owners and the enslaved peoples, in a way, dialogued in a peaceful way. And this, I don't know how to explain, but it was absorbed by a portion of the population. I believe that we were a little bit maybe too tolerant. There is struggle, there was struggle, and there will always be. And I believe it has a lot to do with this construction of ourselves. There is this benevolence and the amicability of relationships. The history of Brazil and the United States in terms of race, it's completely different. 
we weren't able to face it the same way, to deal with it the same way. That's it. Okay. Okay. If you could talk about the tension. So what I see is that the spiritual practice, the spiritual practices that you come from and that you've studied, there seems to be a synthesis emerging between Christianity or Catholicism yeah. and these West African spiritual traditions. Mm-hmm. How much of that was, was that completely based on force as in a way to continue to practice their spiritual traditions, but masking it as Christianity? Or how much of that was a choice, like something that happened naturally, if you could say that? Is there a way to even understand that? Well, it's a complicated subject, also because I don't work specifically with religion. But I can tell you about other cultural aspects, about how they have developed. I'm going to make a parallel in this sense. So I'm going to say that in the beginning, I do believe it was about survival. So you could handle the hardship of that life after the trafficking, still believing and thinking about your land. But I also believe that there were people, individuals, that were exposed to new beliefs, new ways of, of life and believed. And they saw meaning in that and transformed it and appropriated it. Candomblé and Umbanda aren't a representation. It's a construction. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And... Something that you bring up in that article again is a parallel that I see in the United States is the evangelical Christianity becoming very close to, well, not very close, becoming the political power, right? So in the U.S. we have really strong evangelical Christian conservative politicians, mm-hmm. and I see something similar here in Brazil, yeah. and it's even more in its own way, pronounced. And you talk also about, I mean, essentially hate crimes against people that are practicing these Mm -hmm. spiritual practices. What do those crimes look like? How, how frequent are they? Um, Has they, have they gone up since that piece? I know we have, I mean, in Brazil, you have now a, a far right president. So, I guess to just give us an understanding of what's happening with these evangelical political groups and people and mm-hmm. these spiritual practices. You talked about a similarity, but there are very different stories. We talk a little bit about the present time. There's an intersection between politics, what's marginalized in society, parallel crimes. So religion started intersecting with many other dimensions of power. And because of our history, the myth of democracy and racism is still structural. There is a much heavier hand on the religions of the African diaspora. 
The attacks have been happening the same way they have always happened. It's the media that makes this filter of what comes out and what doesn't. But not only the media, right? Also the policies, the laws, the microspheres of power. In what ways are maybe the uh, these, these religious practices, these spiritual practices being... You know, something you say in your article is a way in which we can acknowledge everybody's cultural, spiritual differences and just be okay with that, you know, respect yeah. each other. That's definitely not the case. Definitely. And that's never been that way. Yeah. Do you feel like there was a time where it was starting to get better and then because of what's happening now with Bolsonaro that it's gotten worse? Has there been a, a spike yeah. in hatred towards the African diaspora religions? and spiritual practices? Definitely everything is worse now. <laughs> Because now all of this authoritarian branch that has always existed in the history of Brazil, it's very blatant, it's jumping out. And inevitably, all of the dimensions of this authoritarianism, of these hierarchy forms, they are clearer. I don't know, I can't tell you if there was ever a moment of relative peace. There are moments. Like the waves of the ocean. Now it's definitely worse, but yeah. I'm not gonna sit here. I'm gonna start breaking the microphone if I start saying what I want to say. You don't want to talk about that? We are talking about it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't want you to break my microphone, but if yeah, you want to, I want you to talk about whatever you feel. Same. Whatever you want to talk about. Olha, é, Look, people have been talking a lot about two big concepts, concepts which is Nazism and fascism in the Brazilian scenario right now. Eu I don't think I have to explain what's Nazism or fascism. But it was a historical experience from the 1920s to about the 40s. Today, when we look at today's government, the first instinct is to make this connection between Nazism and fascism. Because Nazism and fascism has in its core very much authoritarianism. That idea of annihilating the other that's different from me. And if you add these subjectivities with political structures and political power, you're not going to get anything good out of it. Even though it's not Nazism or fascism. Because it would be anachronism to say that that is what we have now. Which doesn't make reality less bad. Anachronism. How does this apply anachronism? Can you explain? Since you're a historian, yeah. you're the best person to talk about anachronism. Anachronism historical. Basically, it's to take a fact, a happening of the past, and transport it to the present. Because history is a process. There are a lot of happenings, a lot of lives, a lot of continuities and discontinuities in this process. So even if something comes back, it doesn't come back complete. 
It's a little bit the idea of the time machine. Seems that something's gonna get lost in this trip. I'm gonna find a way to... So, aside from, I know that there's absolutely systemic racism, and I'm not just, I'm not, I don't want to throw that out at all, but I think that there's something about the spiritual, the ways in which these spiritual practices that you are discussing stand in the face of the way that fascism or authoritarianism wants people to view reality and spirituality. Yeah. There's something about it that is repulsive to them that they want to get rid of. What is it about, aside, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not throwing out systemic racism and that that's huge, but what do you think is repulsive to an evangelical Christian or to a fascist when it comes to the spiritual practices of the African diaspora? Look, I believe that it doesn't have only to do with the origin and only with race, which is a constructed idea to create hierarchies and to exploit the other. From my own personal experience, and I don't want to run over anyone else's opinion because we are talking about an opinion. I haven't done a thesis about what I'm going to say. That's okay. That's okay. I believe that the repulsion has something to do with the fact that many of the tejeros, these shrines, being a space of comfort, social comfort. Social comfort, I mean to open the doors and hug the other. You make the other believe in themselves. To feed with food. To feed with love. To make people have the strength of resistance. So these people can, in their daily lives, fight and destroy this racist structure. Not only this racist structure, but also sexist and all these ists, the capitalists. The repulsion comes from that. So it stands, to me it seems like it stands in the way of this uh, project to make Brazil a sort of white, I mean, to really further this sort of white supremacist capitalist end, this game, this idea that we have to get to this point where all of these things that don't fit into that paradigm is pushed out, yeah. is destroyed, right? You say that, that it, and this has been going on for hundreds of years, so I guess to ask, like, what is what does resistance look like to you in this context? I mean, how how are people that are doing the spiritual practices, these religious practices, how are they? How have they traditionally, or in right now, resisting this project to to destroy them? It's a very old project. So the strategies are diverse. The quilombo, which is a structure from another time, it was a way of continuing existing, of surviving. And I believe that the tejeros, these shrines, are similar structures to these quilombos. 
my mother's shrine, for example, many years ago we removed from the front entrance any sort of sign or artifice that might give away that that was a shrine. My mother advises because forbidding she doesn't do. To not go out with necklaces and clothes that give away your religion. Not only for worry about some attack, but because the faith and the belief aren't in these things. They're inside each one. So I am not going to take this risk if my faith is unshakable. I believe that since the aggression, the authoritarianism has been very strong, inside your own home, you want peace. So we speak low, we make few movements, so much to calm ourselves, but also to not call attention of the other. This in the everyday sphere. So, on the outside, there are social movements and struggles, and that's the moment of the struggle and the fight. So, we balance and intersect these dualities of the aggression and the peaceful. At least in my house, it's been this way. So, it seems like there's a there's an understanding when there's certain times to do certain things. It's about survival as well as finding peace and knowing when to do things at certain times, right? We're animals, no? We have a very strong survival instinct. And we know the time to hide behind the bush and the time to attack. I, I just want to ask what you're, what you're doing, what you're working on next. Like, what is your path right now with this work? My resistance project is to take care of myself. I continue believing in education as the most important thing to live, to exist. And that's what I've been building. Okay. Well, I don't have any more questions. <laughs> is there anything else you want to say? No, that's okay. Do you feel like... Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I know it's... For me, I'm coming from the outside, and I'm just here to try to do my part in it. And I mean, I, I know so little, so I just want to thank you for sharing yeah. as much as you have and meeting us here. You are a good person, believe me. <laughs> you have a good energy. So you can kind of get a glimpse there of the complexity of race within the Brazilian context. And I think there was something there at the beginning, and I may have said this already, but I'll just repeat it because it's worth saying. Why is it that people from the United States, and I'm speaking again because I'm from here, so I can speak for this, but I imagine this is true in many white countries, predominantly white countries, European countries, and so on. When we think of places like Brazil, why is it that everything is reduced so much? So when you think about Brazil, you think of uh, you know, some of these tourist destinations, of course, like Rio, there's an exotification of Brazilian women, a fetishization, objectification of Brazilian women in particular. There is, of course, when we talk about the environment, we think about the rainforests of the Amazon, which is not the only rainforest or the only biodiverse regions in Brazil, I must state that. 
think about the indigenous people as being like the noble savages, right? Using quotations around that term. Or, or like, of course, the crime-ridden favelas and all this stuff, right? So there's this this thing where we project so much shit onto these people and we deny the complexity and nuances of this place. And as Karina talked about with the African diaspora, that part is so often left out of the picture. It's not even known about. People don't even know that that even is a thing in Brazil. So I, I felt like it was really great that Mina and I were able to talk with Karina about this and she was able to discuss some of these subjects with us. And of course, just like we did with the More Loveless Capital episode, Mina and I recorded an introduction to that interview with Karina. And there were some really important parts of that introduction that Mina, you know, some things that she discussed in that that was really important. And again, highlighting the complexity of race, the stark differences between the United States and Brazil as far as how race dynamics have played out over the centuries up to the present. Again, this is really just about highlighting Western hubris, the Western gaze, the myopic quality of the ways in which we observe other places and other groups of people. I think that's just really important because a part of the process of, if I'm going to use this again, you know, I said this in the previous section about decolonizing ourselves, about decolonization, decolonizing our gaze, decolonizing the ways in which we observe people. It runs really deep, and it's something that I think is really worth doing in this time. And I think part of what these, well, actually a great part of these interviews that we conducted in Brazil is to discuss that subject of what decolonization looks like as far as how we perceive the African diaspora of Brazil, acknowledging their existence even, the indigenous peoples of Brazil, the whole country itself in the way that it is an incredibly complex thing, Acknowledging those complexities is a big part of what we need to do, I think, as people who care about these things. So I thought what was most interesting to talk to her about this is that Brazil didn't just have to deal with colonialism and the annihilation of indigenous peoples. It had to deal with being also the gateway of the slave trade. Mm -hmm. So it has a very different relationship with race than the rest of Latin America. <laughs> and it's also really unique. It's also different from the United States. So we have a very unique relationship with uh, population of the African diaspora. And that's why Karina talks about spirituality, Umbanda and, and Candomblé, which are religions that are Brazilian. They're a Brazilian phenomenon. It's not African necessarily. It's, it inspires, and she explains this really well, Mm -hmm. uh, it envisions Africa, but it isn't Africa. It's a its own construction. And mm -hmm. I thought this was really interesting. And it's the most important thing for Americans to perceive as well, because I feel like we, in Brazil, are reduced by the West into this indigenous, exotic, indigenous rainforest haven mm -hmm. or poor crime, marginalized, you know, favela type. Right. And I don't think people really understand what that means. Mm -hmm. We have quilombos, which are somewhat like indigenous uh, communities, but for people of the African diaspora, mm -hmm. created and, and sustained by people of African descent. 
So I really want to shift the paradigm on how people see Brazilian population and, and culture. And I love how Karina taps into why is it that people in the West don't pay attention to this aspect of Brazilian culture. Mm-hmm. Because we're not talking about, you know, indigenous peoples living in the forest like saints, you know, these holy the noble things, savage. the noble savages. Yeah. And black people are just doing crime in the favela. Right. Know, I feel like these are such tropes and such stereotypes and we really have to deconstruct that and unlearn this. Yeah, it's like I, I think being here for me, I, you know, I understand the kind of the weight a little more, not like completely by any means, but just the sense of the weight of this history, like that's still playing out. Like it's like what, you know, I don't know if it was naive or wise of me to point out the United States in the interview with Karina, but I'm just saying like, you know, we're colonial, both are products of colonialism, but Brazil, but she'd like to really state very clearly like race relations and, and the politics of this are different here. Yeah. And it's like this thing Americans like to do, and I do this, which is project our problems, our dynamics on other places. <laughs> and we think that they're going to have similar situations and similar conflicts and tensions in, say, Brazil. You know, we can look at it and pretend like it's the same thing. It's not. I mean, it's maybe have similar roots, which is the colonial root, you know, racism, white supremacy, but well, in, in people, capitalism. People hear some you know, reactionary people or right-wing people love to say that racism is a thing of the North. The United States has racism, but Brazil doesn't. Who says that? Um, Bolsonaro, for example. Oh, Bolsonaro. Right-wing people. Mm. And the reason why they say that is it's easy for them to deny the fact that there's racism in Brazil because there is this idea that we are so mixed. There's miscegenation which is different from what the United States did, which is to preserve like some kind of division, there right? There was segregation. It was really segregated. Here we didn't have that. We had the opposite. We tried to, in a way, I'm going to say, I'm quotation marks, please. <laughs> I can't <laughs> see it, but quotation, like get rid of the black population, not by segregating, but by miscegenizing. Is that, is that yeah, a word? or like people of different ethnicities and races like have children yeah, together. So, yeah. yeah, there is an active... Uh, effort to eradicate Africanoid exaggerations, quotation marks, this is actual quotation marks, by mating people and planning marriages. Shit, really? Yeah. I've written about this as well. Hmm. So we went through the different process. It was the opposite of segregation. It was a way to whiten what so, was already very diverse. Uh, we were really trying. And this is where this whole idea of like why Brazilian women are so sexy come from. The Brazilian women were in a way manufactured to be this mixture of this sexualized savage but tamed into whoa. whiteness. Wow. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Jesus. <laughs> I did not. That's, <laughs> I was like, you weren't expecting that. No, Patrick. <laughs> no, it wasn't, that wasn't planned in our introduction. Uh, I say like <laughs> I yeah. No, but it's important though. It's I extremely say, like, important. Get rid of Africanoid exaggerations. This is a straight up citation for a scientific journal from back in the day that I uncovered mm. while doing research. It's pretty fucked up. 
So anyway, the Pan-Africanists and, and a lot of black activists here in Brazil tend to see miscegenation and efforts of miscegenation as a type of genocide. Hmm. And that's the biggest difference from the United States and Brazil. So we, the, the efforts to you know, acknowledge yourself as black, I'm not, I'm just going to make that clear, but you know, to acknowledge mm-hmm. oneself right. as black is really complicated here because no one really is white. And we are really mixed. Sometimes it's hard. You meet black people who go through a really long process of acknowledging that they're black mm-hmm. or knowing what that means. You spoke about a woman mm-hmm. that yeah. she is absolutely... A yeah, yeah. She's amazing. She's amazing. She's a writer of a book about intersectionality so she did a really didactic really short didactic book about intersectionality was inter- what is intersectionality and she did it in portuguese so it's really for a brazilian audience hmm. that isn't exactly you know uh, exposed to um black feminists from the united states mm-hmm. and she we should put a link to her work it's really great and she is really a black woman. She's very black. And I've seen her speak um, in a conference about how she used to call, perceive herself as, you know, like a dark-skinned brunette. <laughs> 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 and how she went through a whole process of acknowledging herself as black. And uh, anyway, I'm not black. So I feel like this interview is really good because I think people can speak for themselves, right? The ways in which the United States dealt with race, if we call it dealing with race, but the way that it has uh, evolved or developed over the decades, over the centuries, is very different than what happened in Brazil. And again, Brazil being, as Mina says, the gate of the African slave trade. Yeah, I mean, the African diaspora is huge in Brazil. They make up a sizable portion of the population relative to the African populations in the United States and other parts of Latin America even. And so she mentioned miscegenation. She mentioned this whole process of, quote, de-emphasizing Africanoid uh, features in people. It's like racism and white supremacy manifests in all of these ways. So in ways that we think of like, Brazil as being this extremely multi-ethnic, multi-racial, diverse democratic society with, of course, this legacy of colonialism and slavery and so on. The kind of diversity that we think Brazil has, which it does, has it's definitely diverse. But the ways that like whiteness and blackness and you know just being non-white, how it's perceived and how it's experienced in Brazilian culture is just very different from how it manifests in the United States. Because in the U.S., it was about segregation. It was about separating black people from white people like white people need to stay pure and not be tainted with the blood of african people you know there's like really fucked up kind of eugenics or or uh, forms of segregation that emerged over the centuries uh, especially after slavery was officially abolished in the united states all of this is just to say i really appreciated these conversations that i would have with mina after the fact and to be able to contextualize a lot of what we discussed in these interviews so I have two more interviews I would like to share with you. The next one is with Christian Braga. This interview was recorded in Sao Paulo. 
And Christian is a documentary photographer, activist, and member of the media collective FARPA. The motto or the tagline for FARPA is, it is therefore a product of the restlessness that moves us, that spurs us every day in search of images that matter. I would just first say, like, Christian Braga's work is so, it's very good. Like, I would recommend checking him out on Instagram, following him there. Along with FARPA, they've had their work published in National Geographic, Al Jazeera, Vice. All these different organizations have published their incredible photography. So this interview is interesting because we'll talk about his history a little bit of being from Manaus, how he became activated to document the struggles of indigenous peoples and other oppressed groups of people in Brazil. Also, the nature of photography just as a medium how it is an artistic medium, but it is also a form of journalism, obviously. He is a photojournalist, and he's documenting current events, the struggles of people as it is happening. And I guess that fine line, or not even a line really at all, between objectivity and subjectivity and how you present uh, current events. And so we talked a lot about these types of subjects in this interview. So my story begins in the Amazon. Before this, I worked with photography in general. And then I started to work more specifically with resistance movements. And that was about 2013. And that's when I went for the first time. It was a manifestation, a protest about Belo Monte, which here in Brazil is a very controversial issue. Uh, we've been discussing this. It's been discussed very much. And somehow I got involved, and this was the trigger for me to get involved in this resistance movement. So it was from this discomfort, I went there and I saw these 10 people fighting in struggle, fighting for something that apparently they wouldn't have enough strength for. But that in a way really inspired me uh, to see how human beings can resist that in many ways we don't even have the strength to win or combat, but we still have enough strength to say no. That was just the climax, the moment when I started to get involved in other movements as well. The indigenous movement, which is in what I work for the last six years, in the Amazon region and in other regions of the country. Belo Monte is very well known because of this struggle that has been dealt with for a few years. It was a very controversial and was a struggle relating to a very large construction, a hydroelectric dam inside the Tapajós River which affected very much the communities that were around the area. One of them is the Unduruku peoples. It's a people that have lived there for decades and centuries. And it affected all of these people in this area. There was a huge flooding. It affected many communities. A lot of people suffered because of the situation. People that didn't really have uh, an economic return or any type of security. In Belomonte, 40,000 people arrived. They arrived to work in Belomonte, and the city didn't really provide much uh, good conditions for these people to live comfortably. And this resulted in a big uprising of these people against this dam. 
And this return is, like I said, a financial return and infrastructure. We have a town in the area called Otamira, which receives 40,000 workers from a large infrastructure project, a national infrastructure project, and you don't give the proper conditions for this city. So in that city, started to have higher levels of crime, violence, and prostitution, drug trafficking. And many people there were uncomfortable enough to the point of meeting and creating a movement, going to the entrance of the headquarters of the Belomonte, of a large national construction. That was the first one that I saw and participated in. And in a way, I was really inspired by that struggle. And it kick-started my trajectory. Um, I guess I would ask, like, the ways in which people... Because I've, I've seen this happen in other countries, where they have these big projects to build dams, and they say it's going to help the communities... But what happens is that they just completely dismiss the concerns of the people that they're supposedly supposed to be helping, right? It ends up going and being diverted to wealthier communities, typically. I know this happens in India often. So, like, what are some of the promises that the government makes to these communities? And what ways do indigenous people or people in those communities react and resist these projects? In the case of Belomonte, the promises, I'm going to begin with Belomonte because the promise was to structure the place around, to create structures for the community, to structure the towns, and to demarcate the lands of indigenous peoples that were in the area, and to give infrastructure and security for the population that will be affected by this project. This returning to the population, uh, good education, returning to the community, some good security, food, employment, which didn't happen, none of it happened. And in the national level, the promises made for the people in the communities and indigenous peoples of Brazil, it's for the land demarcation. I think the main demand which is being brought forward by the national movement in Brazil is the question of land demarcation, the struggle for the territory. In the situation of Belo Monte, the first reivindications were for the communities. The struggle of Munduruku, which was the people affected, is already a struggle that comes from years. To this day, their land hasn't been demarcated. So it's not for nothing that the Munduruku people did something that was so symbolic, for me, very symbolic, uh, for everyone that is concerned with these questions, is that they self-demarcated their indigenous land. So what did they do? They circled around all of the area that they believed that historically, anthropologically, or of ancestral knowledge of the people and the elders, they made their self-demarcation for themselves, since the government wouldn't do it. And they took that area as theirs. But legally, the land wasn't demarcated. Uh, under this kind of new presidency, has there been kind of an increase? Have you witnessed an increase of violence against indigenous communities and their ability to claim territory as their own and protect themselves against government intrusions and in these projects that you're talking about? Like, I guess my, my question is, you know, how, what is the relationship currently with the Brazilian government under Bolsonaro? Uh, I see it as indigenous resistance is a type of resistance that comes from a really long time ago, centuries. And when we say centuries, we mean since colonization. 
and independently of the political party and who was in power, in office, who was administrating this Brazilian government. It was never easy for indigenous struggle. It was never something chill. There might have been more effective policies in other governments. Each government dealt with it in a slightly different way. But none of them were completely beneficial for the indigenous population of Brazil. And now with Bolsonaro, for sure, it got much worse. Much worse in the sense of the rhetoric he's been building during his electoral process, during his campaign, and his own election and the people that voted for him. And it was a rhetoric, completely anti-indigenous rhetoric. And in this government, I mean, this is my perspective as a photographer, as someone who's in some way contributing to this struggle. This rhetoric created something that for some time I hadn't seen for a while. I didn't think it existed anymore for at least a few years, which is of a, a type of violence supported by the government. A type of violence, how can I say it? Yeah, like a, a legitimized violence. And this legitimized violence leads to, for example, last year, there were assassinations of some peoples and leaderships, which were symbolic during the first year of his administration. And in the Amazon, primarily, there were leaderships such as Guajajara, that were assassinated. There was leadership from Guayaquil in the north of the country as well. His death was also completely symbolic, representative, in face of a struggle that was so strong. He was so strong there. We're not able to have a very good reading in numbers, if it's better or worse. But in my view, first of all, no land was demarcated, no indigenous land was demarcated. There was this process of demarcation, which is something that every year was in Increasing. And two, there was an increase in violence. Nowadays, Brazil is the country that kills the most environmental leaderships, indigenous leadership in the world. This is a symbolic data, this moment we're living right now. And this is a view, I mean, I'm not a big researcher in this particular topic, but it's what I follow, it's what I live, it's what I work with nowadays. So this year there were violences, such of indigenous resistance, but also in the actual Amazon, this huge fire that happened in the Amazon that reached even Sao Paulo, and people in the city could follow the level, how extreme this was, the increase of these fires, which was completely legitimized by the president, Bolsonaro, who at some point in August created the day of the fire, which was the day that he allowed the rural kingpins through chats and groups that they could set fire to the Amazon. This is already something that's normal, to have fires during this period, during the drought area in the Amazon. But it dysregulated in an immense way this affected communities and populations, indigenous peoples, and it affected who lived there. We talk about biodiversity, we talk about the forests, the animals, fauna and flora, which were affected because of the legitimation by this government. And there are things that he promised to deal with in the next few years of his administration, which were sensitive situations, which were struggles already a few years ago in the 80s. 
the struggle for the gold in Yonomami, something that he wants to again deals with to allow mining in indigenous lands, which will result in immense violence. Now we have some data which I can affirm with confidence right now because this data is not out yet, but there is data saying that almost 20,000 people inside the Yanomami land mining in Yanomami. So last year I did a flyover with Greenpeace in a mining area near the Munduruku land, which later came out in the national news in the big media. It revealed that, I can't tell you the numbers specifically, but about 5,000 people working in mining lands. And it's a thing that Bolsonaro has already said publicly. It's a struggle that he stands in agreement with this type of mining, the mining in indigenous lands. And this is something that didn't happen yet, legally, through Congress, through law and, and government projects, which is a speech or a talk that has, he has been buying for the last few years. Well, follow up on that, just a question on mining. I mean, so much the focus is on um, agribusiness, right? Industrial agriculture, burning the Amazon so they can farm soy, and dairies, or, uh, you know, uh, cattle ranches. So it, mining is discussed, but, like, I mean, like, is this... I mean, uh, does it, I don't know if it matters to ask this question, but is this legal? I mean, is this something that's kind of given the nod from Bolsonaro, like, go ahead and do it, regardless of the law? Or is this something like that's been legalized in some form? It's illegal for you to do any type of intervention in indigenous lands. I mean, be that mining, wood extraction, extracting minerals, conservation regions are also regions where you can't have intervention in general intervention. So these lands we're talking about are lands that are demarcated by the government. So these are areas that for him to be able to... It's because there are things that I would rather not say. Because legally, I am not so sure about. So with photojournalism, I mean, like, you're... I, I find the interesting balance here of art and objectivity uh, because you're photographer. I guess maybe my question is more of like how uh, how you want to approach art when it comes to documenting what's happening uh, there's this idea that journalism is supposed to be objective you're not supposed to bring your own bias into it but I think photojournalism stands apart from that just automatically like you can't separate the emotional artistic quality of it do you, do you have issue with, not issue, but like, is there a difficulty in trying to accurately show an event and what's happening, but trying to create art out of it, you know, trying to elicit an emotional reaction? Like, how do you balance that in your work? Uh. This is something that, in a way, it's empirical. We don't reflect so much on it. We don't think so much about it. I think that feeling, there's a quote that we have at FARPA in our manifesto, the agency that I'm in, together with some other four photographers. It's the unrest that moves us. 
And it's from this unrest that we work our context. What we do, which is to photograph. And that leaves the documentary, photographic, journalistic work to be and to bring it to the side of art. Art is emotion. Art is feeling. It's unrest. So we try to blend this all. It's more empirical spontaneous. It's something that really moves us and it's something we really believe in. And we let this come through in our photography. It's not necessarily a technique. It's not like a defined format not a defined formula, and just for the fact that we expose publicly our unrest. In other words, we are the only agency that works exclusively with human rights. We don't do anything else that isn't human rights. And the question of social and environment struggles, we have a focus. I think from this focus, we are able to put all of our efforts into that work, which later comes through as a beautiful image, a symbolic image. For example, this photo that you talked about, the Lula photo, mine and the one from Francisco Prona, which mine is from the front and his is from above. And it was a photo that, in a way, the international media expected a photo of him handcuffed, maybe from behind, crying. In a way, we portrayed that imprisonment, which we believe was an unjust process, that imprisonment. We changed the international narrative. In a way, we brought a different image, which shows that in reality, he didn't have to come out handcuffed and crying out of there. But all of this environment that we were living at that moment, it was an environment of a lot of strength. It's not for nothing that it's reflected in that image, which internationally everyone saw. It's that image of him from above and a little bit more of mine from the front. Yeah, so... With this attempt to, a successful at attempt, I would say, to change the narrative around Lula's arrest and release, I mean, what are your, what political ideals are you bringing into your work? How is that being represented in your work? My focus since I started working, it's the question of human rights and social environmental issues. We say social environmental because we believe that inside the environment with humans, they exist in harmony. I think independently of government, the question of human rights needs to be a focus of every government, any government that comes in office, and so on, anyone who's you know, in control of this administration. So human rights is what there must always be, independently of left and right. What I try to nowadays, I mean, I have a progressive outset. I believe in the people, in the population. I believe that we live in an unequal system and who has a lot continues to have a lot and who has nothing continues to have nothing. Unemployment rates are monumental. A lot of people are in need of homes. A lot of people, they need a space, they need a territory. So all of this is it's what I believe in. It's what I see of a country that I live in. It's a country that's completely unequal. In the environmental question, this environmental, this government question doesn't influence as much. Even in the leftist government in Brazil, they affected the indigenous peoples in Brazil, uh, which I didn't agree with. But now we 
with uh, this right-wing administration that we have now, there are many, many projects that I don't agree with. It's difficult to align yourself with the government, with an administration, when you talk about human rights. Even so, because afterwards, it ends up becoming just podium talk. No, it's the left that deals with human rights, and the right not, or vice versa. That's not really the case. I think what we have to do is, in the struggle, is that the question of human rights and these reparations happen in any government. When we talk about affirmative action, we are talking about demarcation of indigenous lands, we are talking about inequality to end inequality. So we are talking about many projects that are beneficial for who needs it, independently of government. The thing with Christian is that, you know, he's representing, he's giving voice to, in many ways, the struggles of indigenous people in Brazil. And I think that he did a great job explaining some of the struggles that they have been in more recently, uh, not just within the context of existing under Bolsonaro, regardless of whether it's a left or right wing president uh, or left or right wing government or whatever you want to call it. The fact is, is that indigenous people have been marginalized, even though they make up a good percentage of the population. In the same way that I talked about with Karina's episode and discussing the African diaspora, the indigenous population is far larger a percentage of the population in Brazil than the United States, for instance. And what's happening to the indigenous people is exactly what happened to indigenous people in the United States, except that it's just taking longer to accomplish what the dominant colonizing paradigm wishes to accomplish, which is the eradication of indigenous peoples and their cultures. This is a long process. It's been going on for over 500 years, and it's continuing up to the present day. Now, of course, the ways in which it is expressed is a little different. It may be expressed under sort of a neoliberal capitalist paradigm. You know, colonialism, as it were, still exists, but it's just manifesting in different guises and different forms. And indigenous people, regardless of whether it's the Bolsonaro regime, whether it's a puppet regime or not, of the United States, whatever regime it is, it could be a military dictatorship, they have existed under a government and under a socioeconomic paradigm which doesn't give a fuck about them. And the idea is like, either you become one of us, you become a part of the dominant culture of Brazil, you forget your cultures, your languages, your histories, and become one of us, or you die. And that's, that's basically the choice, seemingly, anyway. It's a little more subtle than that, but in the kind of bigger perspective, that is ultimately the process that is unfolding uh, there in Brazil. And it's the same thing all over Latin America. It's the same thing in North America as well. So uh, that being said, the final interview that I wanted to feature is with Joshua Birchall. He is an anthropologist and linguist, and we recorded this in his office at the Emilio Goeldi Museum. It is an institution that is up in northeastern Brazil in the city of Belém. Rina and I flew up there and spent a couple weeks up in that region with Joshua, and we had a really great time. I mean, it was just a completely different region that we got to spend a lot of time in and explore together. It was really, really fun, an incredibly beautiful place. Uh, Belém is right there on the edge of the Amazon River, right before it meets the Atlantic Ocean. 
And I could go on and on about that experience of being on the Amazon River and just that, <laughs> just it, it was just so much to take in. It was incredible. But while we were there, of course, spending time with Joshua, we had incredible conversations about his work. And at that time, I think Joshua now actually is living in the United States doing work in the Southwest. But of course, when I met him in Belém, periodically he would do uh, field work in indigenous communities in the Brazilian state of Rondônia, which is in Western Brazil, as well as parts of Bolivia. He had been doing this for over a decade at that point. Uh, his work was to document dying languages in these indigenous communities before they completely disappear. These languages, these indigenous languages in Brazil and in other parts of South America, are disappearing at an alarming rate. These indigenous communities in Amazonia are at the forefront of this trend. Uh, as he explains in this interview, um, of the 26 or so known languages in the region he does field work in, two-thirds of those languages have less than 50 speakers left. And this indicates that one of the most linguistically diverse regions on the planet is on the verge of losing a majority of its speakers within a few generations. Along with documenting these languages for their continued use and preservation, Joshua has a deep understanding of the role language plays in the cultural makeup of the communities he researches, including the internal and external forces that are threatening their disappearance. And so I ask him what those pressures are, and I ask him how those fit within the broader history of colonialism, capitalist development, and environmental destruction in the region. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I was just reading there the description of the uh, episode, but yeah, I think because Joshua became so integrated and connected with these communities over those years, he developed a deep relationship with them, uh, with those communities, and understood the various forces, the various subtle and not so subtle reasons as to why these languages are disappearing. Now, we can talk about overt violence against indigenous people, but there's other forms of systemic violence, of erasure, that occurs with indigenous communities. It's not just that, you know, they're forced to do these things. It's it's like there's pressures put on them economically to learn Portuguese, the dominant language of Brazil, and to forget their indigenous languages because it just lacks a certain utility in the socioeconomic system, Right. So this is what I mean when I talk about genocide as being an ongoing process. It's not just this extremely overt forms of violence that we tend to think about when we think about genocide. It's cultural often, especially contemporarily. It's the destruction of land and the uh, environmental violence that occurs as well. But a lot of these communities have been established, but nonetheless, they are experiencing this loss of cultural memory, the cultural inheritance that they have. And what Joshua does with his work, or what he did when he was there, was to help for, for academic purposes, but also just in the benefit, I think, of these communities, which is to document these languages as thoroughly and as well as possible from an ethnographic uh, perspective, which is to say that he didn't just like write down the languages and make dictionaries and all of these things for these people. That was a part of his work, but it was also to understand language within the context of how it's practiced and spoken and developed within these cultural and community contexts, right? Because language is a lot more than just vocabulary and grammar. It's the actual like spirit and essence of the cultural body in which these people are a part of. 
And that is what is being lost right now. So when genocide occurs, we all lose from that. Certainly the people that are experiencing the genocide are on the blunt end of it, most definitely are experiencing the, the absolute worst of it. That absolutely is understood. But as a human community, as a collective, we are all impoverished by the loss of these languages and the loss of these indigenous cultures. Well, so as a, not all linguists work like this, but like I really take an ethnographic approach to the work I do. Like I'm really interested in how people use their language, like in their day-to-day lives, and even even how they use language in situations where the language isn't being used very much. You know, I think as a, as a linguist, it's really interesting to observe that. And so having kind of day-to-day access to people, like outside of like a kind of formal, like, oh, two o'clock, we're going to have a recording session at my house. Having them having just like a more day-to-day existence with people, you get to observe um, a lot more, right? As like uh, what we call in in ethnography, like participant observation, right? So it's like you don't want to interfere too much with the scene, but you also want to participate in it so you understand the dynamics and you can have like good observations on how things actually act and that they're not like performing it for you or anything like that, that you're participating, right? So you want to get all those. Yeah, I imagine you can't really do adequate research and without being kind of embedded in it, you know? Yeah. And yeah. that's definitely the approach we take. There are people who uh, are more interested in like abstract linguistic structure who are completely content with just like sitting in a hotel room and, and asking <laughs> questions. But that's not really like the way I go about my research. You know, I, I take a more hands-on approach, more ethnographic approach. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, there are different schools of thought and the best way to do linguistics, sure. right? But that's I, not, I, the, not the way I do it so much. I'm sure there is, yeah. That would make sense that there would be you know, different ways of approaching it. Uh, so talk about the, the community that you spend most of your time with and, sure. and what you're studying there. Um, <clears throat> so I've been working, at least so the, the community I'm working with right now, which is the very first place I went when I was in 2009, it's called Odawin. It's a small group. Right now there's probably about 150, 140 people who identify ethnically as Odawin. And there are only... Seven people, I think. Seven people, you'd say, that grew up speaking the language as their first language. Um, And up until 1962, they lived in pretty much isolation at the headwater of a river. So nowadays it takes like three days by canoe to get there, like motorized canoe. So it's still quite far. But in the 1960s, uh, uh, a group of rubber extractors, rubber tappers, came in and more or less uh, enslaved them. Uh, attack them and, and force mm-hmm. them to work on their What year was camps. this again? Uh, where I showed you on the map. No, sorry. What what year was that again? Oh, 1963. This is the 1960s. Yeah, 1962, 1963. During the military dictatorship okay. in Brazil. Okay. Sorry. I When I think of rubber tappers and I think of like the enslavement of indigenous people in that region, I think of like the 1800s. Right. You know? Okay. I just wanted to make sure. No, so the people I work with were people who have... So the last people who speak the language are the people who survived this. Right, there were lots of people who didn't survive, right? That who didn't survive the, the violence and the sickness and all the stuff that came with the involuntary contact. So, uh, of the people who were left, I think there are seven now who were like born and had like gotten some degree of linguistic competence uh, before they grew up. They were forced to relocate. Mm. So, okay. Yeah. Um, so, what I'm actually doing with them, we've started out with just doing a basic survey of just kind of a basic description of the language, mm-hmm. right? What are the sounds? 
what are the words? What? How do we form? How do we form words? Like, what's uh, you know, the morphology? Like we say, right? The different pieces of the words. Mm-hmm. Um, how do they do different sentences? Syntax, right? The structure of sentences and phrases and stuff. So we're kind of doing all that. That was that's just kind of like our basic, our basic description, right? Basic basic description, uh, and. Also, as part of that, we made a large corpus of their their traditional their traditional stories, right? Mm-hmm. Like their mythology. Mm-hmm. So, uh, back when I started, actually, this is kind of one of those reasons why this works so urgent. So, when I first started working, there was an old man named Tiomi, uh, and he was like the last full adult in the village before contact. So he was the last one who had had a kid before the contact with the rubber tappers, for example. Mm-hmm. And so he grew up in a different time, right? He, he grew up before contact. So he learned all of, for example, like the traditional stories and a lot of these things that people maybe who grew up right around contact and that kind of chaos of, of, of violence and sickness, they, they didn't get that stuff transmitted so well, mm-hmm. or at least not as a young child. So we worked like every day I would go up there and I'd bring my camera and my recorder and I'd go to Tiumi's house and we'd record stories. Mm-hmm. Just like the traditional stories, like where did corn come from? Where did manioc come from? Where did the stars come from? And the, you know, these kind of basic foundational stories. And we just started recording every day, you know, and then uh, he lived in the next village over and I'd walk over and we'd record it. And that became, a, that's actually like nowadays a really big part of my data. My data set is the stuff I recorded with them. But for them, the idea was just to record uh, grand, what they call Vovo grandpa's stories, right? Because they wanted, because they knew that he was old, right? Mm-hmm. And they knew that the other people, his children mostly, didn't know the stories as well as he did. So they put a they put a lot of, not pressure, but they, they showed that it was a high priority for me to record their their grandpa's stories while I was there, right? And so, of course, I yeah. did. And uh, and then in 2015, he died, just unexpectedly, 90-some years old in his in his garden working. Uh, and so when he died, he left, he took that whole kind of library of knowledge with him. Hmm. And so now we have all these collections of DVDs and stuff that we've recorded with them stories. And uh, now we have a project. Uh, in the last year, I got this project through the NSF, the National Science Foundation, and the National, Endowments, uh, National Endowment for the Humanities to do a dictionary project with them. And so these old stories that I recorded a long time ago, plus a lot of like interviews and these type of things, uh, I've been working with two people from the community younger people who don't speak the language as a first language, but are kind of like relearning the language, almost like as a kind of at home and in school especially. And uh, I went and we taught them how to do some transcription stuff on the computer and got them some laptops. And so now they're working, I mean, right now, and I'll go back next week. <laughs> so now the next project that we're doing now is making a dictionary of all the stuff. Yeah, how long are you usually out in the, the field uh, <clears throat> at a time? It depends. My field works tend to be my field trips tend to be about a month apiece. Okay. Usually that's like okay. it depends. Sometimes it'll have to be a little longer. Sometimes it'll mm-hmm. be a little shorter. This trip is unfortunately okay. going to be quite short, but okay. Somewhere between like two weeks, I think, is like the minimum in terms of just the amount of like resources and effort it takes. Somewhere between two and six weeks is usually about okay a good field trip. Some people uh, take a different approach and they like to do just like one six month, hmm. like a whole semester in the field. Right? Different people yeah. do different. But that's especially more common in people that are doing like a PhD project or something, right? They'll take a semester and right. Okay, so I have a little bit different approach. Okay, yeah, I just wanted to get a, just understand that, um, and so you you mentioned the sixties. You have the rubber tappers that have played a huge role in, I mean, the enslavement of these people, um, wiping them out in in a large part, 
And of course, languages come with that, right? Yeah. So that, that you mentioned that back in the 60s, now we're, up, now we're in 2020. So what is going on now? I mean, you, you mentioned there's many languages are dying out just yeah. generation after generation. There's less and less of them speaking the language, passing that on generation to generation. What are some of the causes of that? Like, what have you observed that's causing these languages to disappear? Hmm. At least in your personal experience, yeah, maybe not in a, a general question. sense, but... I mean, kind of, uh, without trying to, like, ascribe my own values to it, you know, I see that what happens is that in a, within a community, people see that their children will have a better life, or in their own view, that their children will have a better life if they speak a different language. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really at the heart of it, right? They see, like, they'll have a better life if they can speak, for example, Portuguese, because it's a much, they'll have access to the national economy, they can talk to other groups nearby who, necessarily, who probably don't speak their indigenous language either. So at least, I mean, in the kind of, like, real general sense, that's really it. It's like it's a, a conscious choice between parents uh, to how they teach how they teach a language to their kids mm-hmm. but at the same time there's all these kind of external factors to it right sure uh you know stigma um of course and then also so there's this economic aspect to it right they see that their lives will be better if sure if they have access to more more opportunities whatever outside of the village so i mean that's another one is lack of economic opportunities in the village or you know that so having people constantly searching being dependent on the outside economy and then constantly searching for jobs and that type of stuff is one you know sure. one factor um another thing that w- helps uh especially in these situations like i've been talking about where it's really extreme language loss where we're at like the last generation of speakers and then there's at least one or two generations in between that that don't speak or maybe there's a generation usually there's the generation of passive bilinguals in the middle uh so in those cases where you can really make a difference is through education through helping people make pedagogical materials, booklets, uh, lesson plans, dictionaries, pedagogical grammars, text collections. These are all like really valuable resources because these are teachers who nowadays in the the state, the state education actually, you know, is in theory quite favorable towards indigenous languages, but they don't have the expertise or the resources to do anything about it in terms of materials. Or so maybe somebody will do it, but they'll, they'll make, a, let's say, Somebody, but they'll be an educator, and then they'll try to make, a, let's say, a dictionary of a language or something. Or sometimes you need a little bit of extra scientific background to do something that's technical like that, right? Or maybe like a lesson plan or something. But so there's this kind of like ba- delicate uh, balance between these things. It almost being, seems like there needs to be this almost educational infrastructure in order to preserve and maintain and continue a language. Now, is that what you would say, or is it something? Because if you're talking about stigma and economic pressures and all these other trends, other things that are putting pressure on them to not speak their language anymore, you know, you, you might need these more institutional yeah. factors to keep it going. The basic idea is that we need to, like, create, or not create, but uh, strengthen context where people feel good or appropriate to use their language. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. There are going to be certain contexts where you're not going to be able to. Right. Let's say uh, you live in a village and you go to the city, you go to the grocery store and the cashier's white or whatever. You're not going to be able to speak your language with them. So like that's a clear like domain of use where you're going to use a different language. But let's say a parent talking to their kid in the village or the the school, right, the school setting or uh, parties like there are different different domains 
where people use the language, right? And the idea is to kind of strengthen those. Like for in my own, like growing up as a not always completely balanced bilingual between English and Portuguese, when the the one area where I felt like I really had a lot of Portuguese growing up was when my grandmother, who didn't speak English, would come and live with us for like summer. Right, and so that like created a con a social context where I had to use the language, mm-hmm. right? And I think like similarly that that kind of same idea can apply in indigenous communities when there's like contexts where people, uh, where it's seen as a positive thing to use the language that helps support the use of the language even more. Right. right? Okay. So, I think something that maybe I mentioned this already, but you know, the the original. Uh, reasons why people were not speaking their language was because of really just external force. I mean, there was like yeah. people coming in and they were killing them or threatening to kill them or enslaving them. I mean, there was like colonization, hundreds of years of this process. This isn't in like... In some a, cases, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in many cases, right? And so, you know, you don't have to project or put any political or or anything uh, values on top of that. It's just sort of a historical fact that these sure. things have yeah, happened, right? Absolutely. Um, and as you mentioned, you mentioned the, the stigmas attached to speaking the language and the contexts are different for them. Um, but there is like, you know, the economic context. And, and I, I, I think that there's this seems to be this, this battle that's been going on for a long time, which is to preserve not only the language, but the lands to sort of have indigenous people have land mm-hmm. that is their own. And talk about creating context in which these languages can be preserved, having like their land, yeah. some sense of sovereignty over their space, is a, seems like to be really crucial yeah. in that process. Would you say? Absolutely. I mean, having enough land so that their culture and way of life in general is self self reproducing. I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's super important that they have enough access to resources to where they're not completely dependent on outside resources to survive. So that's a big thing. Uh, so in this, but. For example, like in the group I work, the, I work at, it's very far away, right? It's three days by a little motorized canoe, uh, and you go there, and it's just absolute bounty. Like you know, you can go out fish for half an hour and come back with you know forty pounds of catfish. Uh, you can uh, you know walk half an hour in the woods and come back with uh, two game birds. You know, like these type of things. So it's not only the economic uh, aspect of it, right? They economically, at least in like in terms of traditional economy, they have it made, right? Sure. Uh, but there's also this kind of social economy that they see that their life, that they have maybe even advantages over other other groups nearby who s- predominantly speak the language. They see that they have advantages in the city, for example, and, and these type of things through through uh, speaking predominantly Portuguese. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know, it's a kind of a... So it's, it's like it's not this thing that we can overgeneralize by any means. No, but definitely having enough... Uh, economic resources in their communities so that they're self-sustaining is really important and like uh, when they start looking towards the outside or especially when the outside starts looking into their territory in the case of like a uh, uh, mineral and wood extraction then things can get can change really fast and sometimes in really violent ways mm-hmm. so yeah like like even the rubber tapper situation right the people were doing just fine with no school no nothing until some rubber tappers saw that their land had really good natural rubber and so they invaded it Mm-hmm. Right. So the community itself was self-sustaining until that point. And then because of this really abrupt shift, everything changed. And then through that shift, they ended up being quite dependent on the national economy. Yeah, it seems like the once that rupture happens, it's really yeah. impossible even, would you say, to go back to what existed before that contact was made. Is well, it possible? Let me ask yeah. this. Do you see that any of these communities 
choose or want to go back to what it was like? Or is there is that even a possibility for them? You know, bef- before that contact was made. I don't. I don't. I don't see too many people voicing like. A, I mean, definitely people speak nostalgically about the olden days. Like, oh, back in the day, we used to eat so much fish, or this and this, or the, the, the Brazil nut trees gave so much fruit. But I see what I do see is people looking forward in ways that they can still maintain their culture, right? And like they, they value those things like their language, their their practices, their material culture practices, their spiritual culture. They value those things, but also like don't really want to go back, but they want to have a way to kind of go forward while still maintaining those things. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, absolutely. Is there a way that there's a can there can be a balance between being somehow integrated into the broader dominant culture of Brazil? The language in the language of Brazil, mm-hmm. but also maintaining their indigenous identity, including their language. Absolutely, I think a lot of groups have really successfully done that, and I think all all indigenous groups right now, not just in Brazil but all over the world, are constantly negotiating that process yeah. of like maintaining their own identity but still interacting right within the larger sphere around them. Because they're, you know nowadays nobody's very few groups are in isolation, right? So it's right. You're either you're gonna have to, either you're gonna have to interact or you're just gonna get walked over, walked all over, right? Yeah. Do you think though that like in that process of even if it's just partially assimilating or or whatever you want to call it, you know, becoming a part of the national global economy, whatever it is, that that's something. Do they sense that something is lost? Do you sense that something is lost in that? Because I think language is more than just the words that are spoken. It's the stories. It's the mm-hmm. It's the cosmology, it's the way you view reality and social dynamics and relationships. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So just, just downriver of where the Oduin live, uh, there's another group that's quite big called the Wadi. That's over 3,000 people speak the language. Uh, and through speaking the language, they've been able to maintain a lot of stuff, except that their contact with Western society was mediated in large part through uh, North American-based evangelical missionaries. Right, okay. called the New Tribes Mission of Brazil, and in this case, there was a <laughs> lot of social pressure for the for the Indians to change. Mm-hmm. Not their language; their language was fine, but just the way they lived. Right, so uh, they had to stop drinking, like stop their festival culture. You know, that they're like corn drinking festival culture, which the missionaries saw as very, uh, you know, hedonistic, uh, involving a lot of alcohol and sex mm-hmm. and these type of things. Uh, they had to stop talking about, uh, they had to stop doing their funeral practices. Uh, they had to, um, they ended up kind of changing the way they lived. They used to live in like large extended family, one or two house settlements. Now they got kind of pushed into villages so that it was easier to administer services to them. And so being in higher concentrates causes a lot of problems that they wouldn't have if they lived the way they used to, right? So it's like, sure. even though they were able to maintain their language, so maybe at first look, you go by there and you're like, oh, look, they all speak their language. It's, it's just like it was 100 <laughs> years ago. But if you look a little, I mean, not even a little deeper, you just look around, you see that like things have, have really changed quite a bit, right? And the way that this group has negotiated their contact is different than the way the, the Oduin have, where the Oduin still... Uh, have their diets quite different because of how far they live. They're still quite traditional in terms of like the food they mm-hmm, eat, mm-hmm. Uh, and being so far from the city, they can't be that dependent on other th- on like foodstuffs from the city. But they lost their language, and I don't know. Yeah, it just seems like in this. I mean, I, I get it. Like I'm not. I don't know what it's like. I'm. I can't. I I can't even imagine what it's like to be in that, those circumstances. But 
it's like I, I just thinking about like the negotiation where you're like what do we have to do to survive yeah. and sometimes the things that are required to survive I mean this isn't my point this is something Mina brought up to me earlier but you know but it is an extremely true it's like the idea is like the things that are required to survive actually kind of kill you in that process in a sense I mean would you say that that maybe that's a bit of an extreme what do you mean I'm not sure like by negotiating with the dominant culture you have to give up certain things mm-hmm. but if you don't then you don't have access to resources yeah right so it's like this idea that indigenous people have this like choice mm-hmm. to enter into this economy it's just com- like it's their choice you know it's really not that simple it seems extremely yeah. complicated and yeah. and even coercive in a certain kind of sense and then maybe it's harder to see the coercion because it's been happening over hundreds of years and it's changed forms. Yeah. Because what was, you know, once the rubber tappers is now, I don't know, these evangelical Christian groups from the United States or whatever, you know what I mean? It's just like yeah. little things that come in and alter the course of their cultural trajectory, yeah. right? No, absolutely. No, the, it is a much more gradual process. Like the contact itself with the mass population decline, you know, a lot of people dying from sicknesses and violence and stuff. Like, that has a really fast effect, right? That's mm-hmm. It's like a bit of the shock doctrine sort of idea, right? You can just come in, totally screw something up, and it's much easier to change things really quickly, right? In, yeah. that, in that moment of, of vulnerability. Whereas, like, in the kind of post-contact period, it's a, it's a much kind of gradual process. But it's still going on. Uh, like, yeah, I don't know. So, for example, let's say uh bolsa familia which is a really popular social welfare program in brazil which the idea is that if your children go to school uh you you get a a small stipend the mother gets a small stipend once you can prove that your children go to school right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and indians being brazilians are also entitled to to the benefit right which is great right It's, it's helping these people get money almost as it's almost like a universal basic income sort of thing uh when they live really far away which is great um just some people, how they spend their money is uh, is in different ways, right? Somebody wants, somebody re- might really want to buy like a big sound system, where another guy might want to buy like a motor for his canoe, or someone might want to buy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, take a trip to go meet his grandma in another village. You know, people use the money in in, in all these different ways. Um, so, like, you can't you can't like ascribe like good or bad to it, right? It's just kind sure. of like the choices people make with how they how they use their money and how they use their resources and some people are really industrious like some people really work hard to have things to sell right whereas some people really work hard to have like a really nice garden for themselves and their family right like different people Mm kind of go about how they want to interact with the economy in different ways right that makes sense yeah so yeah some people are really into the market economy they plant a bunch of coffee or they dry a bunch of fish to sell or get a lot of brazil nuts to sell Whereas some people, they're okay. Like, some people are okay with just getting that little stipend per month. And, uh, yeah, they're just, they're just okay with that kind of bare bones sure. subsistence, you know, that they supplement with whatever they can. Right. So I'm just kind of curious. So if there's this, um, there's this real effort to preserve their language and to keep these things going. Uh, but it, it it also seems like the pull to just kind of abandon it is still present in many of their day-to-day lives. Do you sense that that's 
going to increase as time goes on? Like, do you see that that's something that's happening, or is there more of an effort now more than ever to preserve language and to preserve their community dynamics? I think, I mean, just speaking of the, the region I've been working in, the combination of the, the work we've been doing and other colleagues in the, in the anthropology and linguistics community in Brazil and abroad, that, like, on one side, that has had a, a positive impact of people, you know, valuing more, having this kind of consciousness-building idea, and also this kind of educational side of people going to this intercultural education and hearing from, you know, university professors there, the ones that are training, that also it's really important. And having this intercultural education actually makes it, to a degree, like, commodifies their culture a little mm-hmm. bit, because, like, you're a school teacher from X uh, community, you're expected to go to that village or go to the, some educational event, or let's say a little conference or something. You're expected to go as a representative of your community. So then uh, you have pressure from your, your relatives and either people from other indigenous communities to you know, represent that community well, their language, their culture, their knowledge, their you know, stories and those type of things. And so that actually gives people a bit of like a prestige incentive to learn these things, right? Like I remember right after... A, call, a friend of mine from this community, the Oduin, who, who the children were raised not speaking the language, right? They heard the old people speaking it, but they were never spoken to in the language, or very rarely. Uh, he said that he, he, he went there and he felt like uh, ridiculed. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was supposed to uh, say something in the language and didn't speak the language. So he didn't, you know, so he felt like almost his, his other indigenous colleagues kind of thought less of him bef- because of that, Right. Uh, and so he came to me one day and was like, hey, hey, Josh, you know, Josue, they call me, uh, you know, I, I felt, I don't want, I don't want to feel that way. He came up to me and was like, you know, before I always saw it was like a really nice thing to, to speak Portuguese well, blah, blah, but then when I went to sing, I felt bad for not speaking my language and I don't want to feel like that anymore. Like I want to, hmm. I want to do what I can. And I was like, well, that's good. Good thing your mom is one of the last, you know, five or six people who really speak the language well. And so I kind of helped them. Yeah, work that, with his mom to kind of how to kind of investigate that part of uh, her knowledge, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm all for people obviously doing that, and wanting to uh, speak their language that their ancestors spoke, right? Yeah. That their parents speak and so on. But it kind of turns into this token thing, right? It's like yeah. you become this token member of an indigenous community, and and there's a lot of things projected onto that, you know, yeah. and that seems to be. So I guess to me, to get back to something I was pointing to earlier, which is this idea that just by the very act of trying to play the game hmm. a little bit, there's all of these costs that come with that. Sure. And it's just, it's just hard. It's just sort of, I mean, I don't want to like reduce it to just heartbreaking or whatever. It's complicated, but it's like, you know, how do you... I don't know, I'm just trying to imagine, like, I just don't have to think about this in my day-to-day experiences, but just having to negotiate with this thing all the time, and it always seems like it always wants more from you, yeah. you know, and it's always changing, like, if you have the, a, a regime or a presidency like uh, Lula or Duma, and then you have Bolsonaro come in a little later, I mean, the, the game changes a little bit, yeah. and they have to constantly, like, well, now what do we have to do to, to exist at yeah. all, you know, in, in any form? It's just, it's kind of... So I would think, uh, like, yeah. maybe a more accessible parallel to someone from your background would be, like, uh, you said there are a lot of, like, Mennonites and Hutterites and stuff in, in the northern Rocky Mountain West, right? Sure, yeah. Uh, so, like, imagine being in one of these communities, 
but your grandma speaks the old language, right? She speaks uh, Plattdeutsch. She speaks Lower Lower Dutch or Lower German because mm-hmm. uh, she's you know from one of these communities. But you're a grandson, and so maybe you heard your grandma speaking it, but she never spoke to you in that language. Right. Right. And you see that your life is good because you speak English to everybody. Like, what's your incentive to learn? Right. Yeah. So it's like it's a it's a pretty similar situation, right? It's like yeah. it's how inward looking they are versus how outward they're looking, and then like what benefit they can see for themselves and for for community. Well, do you see something about the the complexity of identity, right? Because oh they, they're like, <laughs> yeah, I know it's a big thing, <laughs> but we could just say this a little talk a bit about this, which is like. If you identify as a member of this community, as this indigenous community, you speak this language, you are of these people, you have these stories, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, you are this person. And then you do see the, uh, maybe there isn't really any actual immediate or even long-term benefit to preserving that culture, that identity. I mean, that's just got to be like... I mean, how do do people that you interact with in these communities, do they have this Hmm. question... You know about what it means to be who they are or yeah, do they yeah. feel like or is that not an issue that comes up for them no i think it is i think it's something that they're constantly working on they're something they're constantly they're constantly mediating right mm-hmm. and and discussing yeah so i mean i i think people look look at these things and especially i think people value the language and the culture and all these things just sometimes they have different priorities you know sure um, yeah. No, it's uh, just it's just complicated. It is. It's really difficult. Uh, and you can't speak for them, but you've, you've, of course, you've had yeah. a lot of access to their inner life and their world. So sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, the language obviously plays a big, big role in their identity as indigenous people, right? And I think that's the kind of the story I told about my my friend who went to uh, the like a a workshop and then was kind of ridiculed for not speaking his language was one of these kind of informal pressures going the other way, right? It's not, sure. I mean, there's pressures, there's different, you're hearing different things whispered in your ear by, by culture all the time, right? And from different people and different actors, and there are all these kind of conflicting messages, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's, all, it's always going to be like that, and it's just kind of these little choices that people make to, you know, to... Oh jeez, I don't even know how to how to how to say it. It's yeah. okay. I, I just I think that that your inability to maybe even comp, to talk about it is part of the thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like how it's do you talk thing. about this? This yeah. is like a big and me particularly being such an outsider, you know, I'm I can only like have thoughts. Yeah, you know, sure. About it. Yeah. And ask questions. Yeah. That's hard. The identity language. It's it's because I think that's the thing about language, right? Is there's a, it's attached to everything. It's not one thing. When you study language, you're not just studying words. I mean, you can, but you seem to approach it from a much more like sure. comprehensive, Absolutely. integrated way, right? Yeah. It's tied to the culture. It's tied to everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when it's lost, you're losing a lot more than just words. Absolutely. It, so language is much more than just a collection of words, right? It's more than a collection of words. It's more than a collection of phrasing. It's a way of thinking, a way of interpreting things, a way of expressing yourself, a way of like making sense of the world around you, right? So it really, when you lose a language, it's not that parts of the culture can't be propagated, that they can't be transmitted, because they absolutely can. It's just that, like, a language is such a, uh, a nice cognitive lens to see all these things through. Your stories, mm-hmm. uh, your food, your relationships uh, within your community, outside your community. That when it's lost, you know, things 
things it definitely changes changes it right yeah well let me ask you what your I mean, this is your personal uh, opinion on this or thoughts on this but what is lost so if this language you're studying and if it wasn't being documented at all hmm. and it were to disappear in the next generation or so i mean what to you is lost in that that's well, a value for i mean for people that are outside it's like who cares you know i speak yeah. english everybody else speaks english everybody yeah. speaks portuguese here whatever What's lost? What's lost in that process? For one, there's this kind of process of cultural continuity and transmission that's been going on for millennia, right? Uh, these people, they've been in this as far as they know, right? And when uh, they stop speaking their language, a certain, uh, certain aspects of that's going get, get, uh, not going to get transmitted anymore, mm -hmm. right? So that's the kind of the... What ends up losing is the continuity of a people over thousands of years, Right, that's a big that's a big thing, and with that, all the other, all the other parts, all these people's uh, way of thinking and observing and discussing and interpreting the world around them, right? And that's mm -hmm. that's like some like this evolutionary socio evolutionary experience or experiment in this one location with this one set of surroundings with this certain set of outcomes, and you're just kind of uh, cementing over that whole you know that whole. Uh, whole ecosystem of, of, uh, social, of language and culture and history that, that has been growing there for like a thousand years. All right, everybody. That was the last interview I wanted to feature. That was the last interview that we conducted on that trip. First of all, I just want to thank you for your attention, for listening to the second part of this episode 300 of Last Born in the Wilderness. I especially want to thank Mina Wabi-Sabi for the amount of work that she put into this project the series of interviews that she fixed me up with, that she provided interpretation for, uh, and all of that, and the incredible kindness that she showed me in being able to work with me on this. Uh, it was an incredible series of interviews that we were able to conduct there in Brazil, and the experience has been living with me ever since. And I want to thank each of the people involved in this project. I just want to frame this time-wise as far as where all this fit in the trajectory of my work. So, this trip to Brazil, when I came back to Sao Paulo, I flew out of Sao Paulo, came back to the United States in February 2020. Within about a month, month and a half period of that, COVID, or at least the reaction to COVID, was beginning in the United States. Lockdowns, travel restrictions, social isolation, etc. So it was a bit of a jarring experience to have travel to Brazil and spent that time there, come back to the United States, and within a very short period of time to be isolated and to deal with and try to integrate everything that happened on that trip. Uh, I think in a way there was something good about being able to sit alone after all that time and to think about everything that I had experienced, the lessons that I had learned on this trip. I really love Brazil. Having been there for the time that I was, was such a deep well of insight and experience that I continuously draw upon in my personal life and in the work that I do. It has so deeply informed everything that I do now for this work. And I've talked about that already throughout this section, but I just want to state that the series of interviews were very important and influential for me. And the work that I did with Mina was very significant in how I approach so much of my work now. Yeah, so we're going to move into the next sections here. I'll be releasing three, four, five, six, and 7 of this multi-part series, uh, which I'm still calling episode 300. It's a very long project, but 
doing this particular thing that I'm doing with these Brazil interviews and all the other ones that I'm going to be featuring in future uh, segments is allowing me to reflect on the work that I've done over the past hundred episodes, on the various themes that I have explored over that time frame, uh, and to really integrate it because working with a lot of this information that I do, I am holding that inside of me and I don't always know how to process it or to work with it. So I think on a subconscious or even on a conscious level, I am understanding that I am working with this information as a way to make sense of it for myself. And I hope that for all of you that are listening, that have been on this journey up to this point, that this has been educational as well as kind of an emotional journey as well. You know, there's a lot there to process as far as how this information is received inside of all of us. All right, and before we end this, I just want to say if you want to learn more about this episode or any of the other episodes I've produced for this podcast, you can go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. For this episode specifically, if you go there, you'll find all the timestamps and everything you need to know about each of the people featured in this episode, as well as the various interviews that they were a part of. If you'd like to support this work monetarily, there are a few ways to do that. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Any donations are very welcome and very, very helpful. You can also find me on Venmo at Lastborn Podcast. If you'd like to support this work on a regular monthly or yearly basis, you can go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. Go there, and if you contribute to the production of this podcast in that way, you'll gain early access to these interviews before I release them publicly. To everybody that has supported my work in all the ways that you have, thank you so much. I see it and I feel it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much.